0: Alright guys, welcome everybody. I forgot to do this one earlier so you'll just have to kind of stick with me. As I get situated just a bit, Um, church. I want to kind of just highlight something that we introd a little while ago uh, last week, in fact, which is Team Sunday that we did here at the church. We introd this uh, this concept, and we said, Hey, listen, we're having all these athletic teams register and sign up, and we've got multiple teams already planning on coming here in just three weeks away. Uh, It's uh, Labor Day weekend, it's September three. If that helps, and we're really excited about it, not just because we. We want to have some fun with athletic teams in the area, Uh, not just because we want to do some food and some games and prizes and things like that, although it is going to be fun. The idea behind behind this weekend is that over these next four years, we pray that there's a spiritual rhythm among these athletes that's going to be started, a rhythm of weekly worship. And, And it's our hope and it's our prayer that these individuals will have their faith reignited over the next four years instead of losing it. And it starts right here. The uh, reason why I bring it up is we could still use about three or four more individuals to help bring some food. You can check uh, more information about that and sign up to, uh, to bring a little bit of food at encounterchurch.org slash Team Sunday. Okay, church, uh, today, is, uh, today is our final installment of our series called Poison Control. And we've been taking a look at a little bit of the different toxins or poisons that had a way of getting inside each of our lives and our hearts, our spiritual lives, and poisoning the relationships with others around us and with God above us. Uh, this morning, rather than just jump in, I thought we'd have a little fun with this one and, uh, and remind you uh, of a great American classic film. And I just brought a picture of this one. Some of you are going to recognize this one. Click. You're familiar with this one? You're like, I don't know if Adam Sandler is the actor that you think he is. He is. He is. Watch Hustle. It's an incredible movie. But, th- but this one, no. I'm not going to do the thing that I usually do, which is like, hey, show of hands, everybody. Uh, who has seen the movie Click? Because I don't want to embarrass you. It's not a great movie. I in no way endorse it whatsoever. Let's just get that out in the open. Uh, but the, the reason why I do bring it up is because it ties in so well. And I want you to have the visual. Movie is a main character named Michael, played by Adam Sandler, and life is just too much for him. It's spinning out of control. He can't possibly fit everything into life that he wants to fit into life work, family, parenting, etc. And so he is introduced to this eccentric inventor, played by Christopher Walken, who introduces him to his latest invention, a remote control. A remote control that can manipulate and change the reality around him. Pause, rewind, fast forward. This remote does it all. It is, in a very literal sense of the word, a universal remote control. And I just got to hand it to the creators of this thing. They made a major motion picture out of a pun, which is awesome. My dad heart just loves that completely. I bring it up because I want each one of us to know, I, I want you to know that you have a remote controlling your life as well. I have a remote controlling my life as well. I'll paint you a little bit of a picture and you can see whether or not it sounds familiar at all. My wife and I, we, ch- we share calendars on our phones and I would love to say that we do this out of some like healthy pastoral spiritual practice That's not it at all, right? It's not about accountability or transparency. This is just about necessity because we are the parents of preteens. And if there's something that you know about preteens is that they need to be delivered to about a hundred different places every single day. We are glorified Uber drivers. The only difference is we don't get tips. Which, if you see my kids, just let them know. I'm just kidding, don't bring that up to my kids. We drive these kids all over, and so it's not entirely unknown to us as parents to get a random call at a random time of day or evening from one of our kids to say, hey dad, I'm just wondering if anybody's gonna come pick us up. (laughs) And I'm not too embarrassed, I'm not too proud to admit that, that it happens. But what is slightly more embarrassing is what follows up after that. It's like the conversation between my wife and I after that moment. Maybe when the kids go to bed and we're on the couch and we start arguing, right, about whose fault it was that they didn't get picked up. Whose responsibility it was to pick them up. Who is supposed to own this thing? And that's where the technology comes up. And that's where the digital evidence comes up. There will be a forensic audit to make sure that it wasn't my fault to pick those kids up. I will go back and look at text messages. I will cite things in my email. No, no, this wasn't my fault. And we could be sitting, church, five feet away, but there might as well be a world between us. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Because what keeps the world between us? What keeps us? from admitting that we own at least 5% of whatever it is that happened. What poison could possibly be controlling us in our reality? And today we're going to talk about that poison, and its name is pride. That's what pride does pride keeps us from and causes us to pride and I just made a list because I wanted to be reminded of everything and I want to invite you if maybe some of these sound familiar pride keeps you from celebrating other people's success possibly at work pride keeps you from initiating an apology that you know you should offer pride keeps you from admitting that you need help because you don't need help you're you You don't need help. Pride keeps you from learning new things because after all, you already know everything. Pride keeps you from complimenting your coworkers. Pride keeps you from telling your kids you're proud of them. And pride keeps you from liking things on social media because you don't want to give them the satisfaction. (laughs) But pride also causes you to. Pride causes you to cheat in order to win, even though it's just a game of Uno and even though it's against a four-year-old. That's what pride does. Pride causes you to feel good about other people's downfall. Pride causes you to lie about who is at the party or maybe how good of friends you really are. Pride causes you to buy things that you can't afford to impress other people. Pride causes you to bring home a cheesecake from the grocery store because your significant other is on a diet and you don't want them to get skinnier than you are. Savage! But these were crowdsourced, so it's really on you. This is the power, church, that pride has to control us. And I think you could probably relate on some level with a few of these. And you don't want pride controlling you. Pride is the thing that keeps us sitting on a couch five feet and a world apart from each other, keeping us from initiating any kind of reconciliation. That's the power that pride has. And Jesus masterfully shows us a way out of pride so let's go to let's go to what he has to say we're going to go to the the gospel the book of luke chapter 18 if you're just if you're new to, to church or jesus or, or reading the bible we say it's found in the book of luke chapter 18 really what we mean by that is that one of the one of the eyewitness testimony gatherers two thousand years ago his name was luke and he gathered up all this testimony he compiled it into one writing and we know that writing today as the book of luke so let's go there Let's go there. Um, and Jesus, he, he, starts this, uh, he starts off this talk in Luke, chapter, in Luke chapter 18. And he goes, to some who are, and I love this, this phrase, I love this line, to some who are confident of their own righteousness confident of their own righteousness, he, and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Now, I want to highlight something. Um, when he says he looked down on everyone else, I can't prove it, but I think that's where C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, came up with this line about pride. He goes, you can't look up at God when you're looking down on everyone else. And Jesus has this line right here who's this confident looking down on everyone else, and he tells them a parable. Uh, Some of you know, maybe some of you don't know, parables are just made-up stories that Jesus makes up and tells in order to drive home a spiritual truth. Doesn't matter if it did happen, it does happen. And that's kind of the point that Jesus is highlighting. And so here's the deal. Jesus is telling this story for the spiritual truth, and he's saying, Two men, two men went up to the temple to pray. That's going to be important. One of them was a Pharisee, and the other one was a tax collector. Heads up, Pharisees in the story are supposed to be the good guys. Some of you have been like churched so much and read so much of the Bible, you're like, Pharisee, immediately I know he's the bad guy. Yeah, Jesus sparred with the Pharisees kind of a lot. But listen, I want us to remember, they're supposed to be the good guys. Like the Pharisees were supposed to be the people that brought spirituality to the masses. Like they just instructed people, you want to be right with God, this is exactly how to do it. And it's a checklist format. I would say, the vast majority of us would love to just have a simple checklist to know how we get right with God. And that's what the Pharisees did. And the problem was, it was all a checklist. It was only a checklist. And that's what Jesus came to highlight the shortfall of. But Pharisees are supposed to be the good guys. Tax collectors are supposed to be the bad guys. We look at tax collectors and it's like, yeah, like an IRS agent, bad guy. I'm down with that. I understand. It's a little bit different than that because the tax collectors were like the shakedown artists. They were the extortionists. And trying to find something today that a tax collector would be similar to, it'd probably be like the mafia movies that you remember that you you see when when like the the thug goes to the storekeeper and he's like, hey, for such and such a a price, I'll offer you protection. And they're like, protection from who? And he's like, protection from me and, and my gang. Like that's who the protection is from. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to be protected from you. Pay the fee or bad things will happen. That's the tax collector. He's he's working on behalf of the thug's named Rome, the occupying force of the area. And he's going, hey, pay the fee or experience the consequences. You could understand why tax collectors weren't exactly all that well liked. But the thing that I want to highlight is this line right in here, that they went up to the temple to pray. Now, what we're going to see is a specific kind of prayer. And I think it's going to help us to know what kind of prayer this was. Because when you went up to the temple to offer these specific kinds of prayer, what this was all about was really uh, a prayer of atonement, a sacrifice of atonement. What that would be is everybody would go into a, into a whole courtyard, kind of all together like this. And uh, the priest would come out. They would all sing a song together. Uh, the priest would maybe say a few words. And then bring a lamb or an animal, some kind of atoning sacrifice, back behind closed doors, like inside of the temple. And it was at that moment that every single person in the courtyard was supposed to like offer up their, uh, their individual prayers. We're stepping back in time a couple thousand years. We should remember that individual prayers at this time were always uttered out loud. Uh, Individual prayers that were like silent prayers, like like what Christians do at restaurants, you know, and everybody just kind of quiet sound for a second there, and then everybody, like you get back talking. That didn't come along for another couple hundred years, uh, and I could go on a whole rant uh, as to like why I think like silent prayers contributed to the downfall of spirituality and corporate wellness and community. But that's a whole rant for another time. Just pointing out that these prayers were done; they were individual prayers, which is unique, is the only time they offered those, and they were done out loud. And these individual prayers out loud that were done in the atoning sacrifice always had three parts to it. Part number one was confession. Part number two was thanksgiving. And part number three was a request for help. So, If you're paying attention, individual prayers, the priest goes back, and everybody says out loud, I'm sorry for, thank you for, and please help me with. And the priest would come out, the animal conspicuously absent. <laughs> the priest would declare everybody's sins atoned for. They were right in their standing before God. There was a, t- uh, a trumpet that would blast, cymbals that would clash, release the smoke, and they'd repeat. We drop in on the story, and everybody knows this is the structure because they lived it. We drop in on the story, and to hear those individual prayers that the Pharisee and the tax collector, the good guy and the bad guy, Offered. And this is what they say in the very next line. The Pharisee stood by himself and he said, God, I thank you. There's no confession. There's no I'm sorry for. He skips right to the thank you because he doesn't have anything to be sorry for. So we don't need to do that part. God understands. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or kind of like peeking out with an eye wide open, or even like this tax collector right over here. And to drive it on more, he reminds God, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of everything of all that I get. And the guy's like highlighting You know how you're supposed to fast before those Jewish high holy days that come a few times a year? Just fast around those holidays? Uh, Three big holidays, so it's like six days of fasting, the day before and the day after. He goes, I incorporate Sabbath days in there too. So twice a week I'm fasting. I'm so good. And, And you know how you're supposed to tithe on everything that you produce up from the ground. Oh no, no, I tithe on everything. You know how some people tithe on just their income? I tithe on my net worth. And he's going, God, I am so great and I just want to say thank you for making me so great that I'm not like everybody else, including this tax collector, like right over here. This is what pride does, isn't it? Pride promises to puff us up. Pride promises to make us bigger and better than everyone else. This is what pride promises. Pride promises self-exaltation. Pride promises us self-sufficiency. I got this, I'm good, and I'm better. And he is not only wearing pride, I'd go ahead and say he's controlled by it, even in his prayers. an astute student of scripture is going to notice a small detail that Jesus masterfully talks away in the passage that we just read. Let's see if you caught it. When he says, in verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself. Pride has a promise to push, puff us up and to make us bigger and better. But what it's actually doing is pushing every single other person away. He's standing by himself. Nobody wants to be around the Pharisee. He's isolated. He's all alone. And we can see him as lonely. This is the consequences of pride. Now, for a lot of you, I'm going to say some things, and this isn't new. You've seen this play out. You've seen this movie, and you know how it goes. You know the dips. You know the ending but when we're on the inside of it, you guys speaking from personal experience, for me, it's so much harder to recognize. I just wanna give you a few things that pride does. It promises us to, to make us bigger and better. But what it actually does is it shrinks us down. This is the control that it has. It shrinks us down. It diminishes us. It promises us to make us bigger and better, but what it actually does is make us smaller and more inferior. Number one, pride shrinks our capacity to say what needs to be said. You've got somebody at the office. Maybe it's an employee. Sometimes for many of us, maybe it's a boss. Somebody who needs to hear an affirming word from you. Somebody who needs to hear something positive come out of your mouth towards them and we think that they're in the charge, that they're the boss or they're management and I'm not, so they've got it together. They're fine. They don't need to hear from me. We've already got this whole gap between us. And they make more money, so they're good anyway. But pride, what it does is it shrinks our capacity to say what needs to be said, to say that positive word that they desperately need to hear. Or if we are going to land this thing even, even harder, even more at home? Some of us have kids at home who have never heard those simple words I'm proud of you. I love you. And I don't know how else to say it because I never said it when you were little and now you're older, a teenager, or maybe 20, 30 years old, 50 years old, and I've just got a long record of never saying it. And my pride is controlling me and shrinking me down and reducing my capacity to say the things that need to be said. What it also does, pride shrinks down our capacity to hear things that we need to hear. Because some of you have had people in your life who have tried to tell you some things. Hey man, this is not your best look. I think you should probably knock that off. You need to try on a whole different attitude. And it's like whenever they try to like make their way in these words, they just bounce right off. In fact, you've probably had people tell you, I tried to tell you over and over, but it's like my words are just bouncing right off your thick skull. You can't hear what needs to be heard. The most insidious one of all of them is that pride shrinks our capacity to experience love. And that's what's so nasty. Because what pride does is it puffs us up so big and takes all of the air right out the room and it makes no room for anybody else and it pushes them away. And everybody else knows. That what they have to say is not going to be heard and every other person in your life already knows that you're not going to say what needs to be said and so why bother and so all your relationships are like walking around and everybody else is walking on eggshells around you because they're afraid if they say something or if they look at you a certain way then your pride is going to come lashing at them and push you out even further and they're worried about being on the receiving end of some kind of conflict maybe it's going to be loud Maybe it's going to be the silent treatment, and you don't know how long that is going to last. Maybe it's going to be passive aggression that comes out. Maybe it's going to be aggressive aggression (laughs) that's going to come out. Like, who knows? But that's what pride does. We think it makes us bigger, but it makes us so much smaller and puts us in this little box. And I want to get kind of real with you. It's not just our, like, horizontal human relationships that pride pushes out. I'm gonna to try to say something, and I would love for you to enter this with some grace and open-mindedness. Because it's gonna be a difficult word for some of us, but it's worth saying. Sometimes our pride keeps us from pushing God out of our lives. And I wanna to talk to those of you in particular who are not yet followers of Jesus. Maybe you're here, you're watching this online, somebody sent you this message, awesome. And you just haven't crossed over. You're like curious, but you haven't like crossed that line of like trust and allegiance. Jesus is my Lord and savior, he's in charge of my life. And you've not quite crossed that thing over yet. And the reason why you haven't crossed over it, you tell yourself it's because of these intellectual questions that you have. I just, you know, I can't get over maybe these two, three, four things two, three, four arguments as to why God can't exist or why the God of the Bible isn't the one true God and how we can't know or why Jesus isn't who he said that he was. Whatever it is, you've got two, three, four reasons intellectually of why God can't be God. And those are the reasons that you give. And I just want to have the humility to say, I don't know what those things are, but I want to have the humility to say that if we sat down together and you offered those two, three, four intellectual reasons to me, I don't know if I'd be able to like overcome them in a conversation, you know? And I wanna, I wanna own that. There's questions that, yeah, I have as well. And I don't want you to assume that I could overcome those. you probably sat down with a pastor just like me once upon a time in your journey and offered your three or four arguments as to why God can't be God and this whole thing kind of falls apart and they didn't give you a very satisfying answer. And so it's your intellect that has kept God at arm's length. I just want to humbly suggest it's possible this morning for you to consider it's not your intellect that has kept God at arm's length. It's your pride. And the only way that you're going to know the difference between whether it's your intellect or pride that's keeping God away is if you can look at some of the other relationships in your life. Maybe it's with coworkers. Maybe it's family members. Maybe it's your acquaintances. And you can ask them, hey, listen, when there's some kind of conflict between us, Do I haul out the big guns in my arguments? Do I try to get really heady and intellectual? Do I try to overcome you and stifle you with my words and my ideas? And if everybody kind of looks at their shoes and says, no, man, that's not it at all. You know it's pride, not intellect, that's pushing God at arm's length, just like it's pushing everybody else at arm's length. And I just wanted to ask that, just dial a number, and if your phone rings, go ahead and pick it up. Jesus tells you what to do next in the next line. We're going to pick it up again in the very next line in verse 13, where we read this. Uh, But, but the tax collector stood at a distance voluntarily. There was something inside of him, the humility, I'd say, that just didn't told him, not to stand in the middle of a crowd. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's interesting about this thing because uh, culturally, this kind of show of emotion, men just didn't do. Uh, a few things have changed in the last couple thousand years. Uh, women and children, they would kind of flail out. They would show some sort of emotion. Men, even at a funeral of a close one, if they really, really wanted to show emotion, the Jewish custom of the day was to sort of fold their hands over their chest like this. They weren't supposed to show emotion. But this guy, this tax collector, right? The bad guy in the story, he stands himself at a distance, looks up to heaven, and he beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, And Jesus steps out of the story and he says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And remember, it's the atonement sacrifice. That's the whole point of why they were there in the first place. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Everybody who tries to build themselves up in pride will be brought down low. And those who humble themselves will themselves be exalted. And that's really the key. Isn't it? And we just talk about like the Jesus keys to like unlocking this pride thing and freeing us from the control that pride has over top of us. Come on, you guys know this. For some of you who grew up in church, this is like the thousandth time that you heard this. Humility is the thing that Jesus introduces into our lives just to make sure, to free us from pride, to give us the full life that Jesus said in John ten ten, I came that you may have life and have it to the fullest. Humility is the pathway to get to that full life free from the control of pride over your life. And maybe you just haven't heard it like this before. You've heard the stories, but maybe not quite like this. Jesus put on humility, and we know that. Again and again, think of the hands of Jesus. Jesus puts on, he takes on humility. When when he heals the sick and he raises the dead back to life again, Jesus goes ahead and he touches people with leprosy, this Contagious skin disease. But instead of Jesus getting whatever they had, they get whatever Jesus had, which is health and righteousness. It goes through him into them. And then Jesus takes those hands, right? And he bends down low. On his hands and on his feet, he picks up the feet of those disciples and he washes away the dirt and he washes away the mud And with his hands, he washes away the animal excrement on their feet from the streets outside. And he says, go and do likewise. He puts on humility. And that's really the thing. That's that's the key. That's the big aha moment. That's everything for us. That's our charge to go into the week. That's the thing that's gonna change every relationship that you have. That aha moment of following after Jesus, when when what he does at its core is that he initiates reconciliation. Jesus sees that there's a problem, sees that there's a rift, or sees that there's a conflict, or sees that something needs to be done, but instead of saying something should be done about that, instead of saying it wasn't entirely my fault, instead of sitting five feet away. In in a world apart, Jesus initiates that reconciliation. He starts, and don't get me wrong, Jesus was right. Jesus was then wronged deeply, yet Jesus started, Jesus initiated reconciliation. And that's everything. Initiate reconciliation, following after that pattern of Jesus, changes everything. And this thing is so central and so huge and such like an aha moment to every single one of our relationships. We just turned it into a cute little rhyme. Pride says wait and Jesus says initiate. I mean think about how this could change everything at work when somebody doesn't follow through with the project and you're like I'm just gonna wait right over here and wait for them to realize how they did me wrong. Pride says wait and it controls us and keeps us there and it makes us smaller. But Jesus says initiate. Pride says, wait on the couch for the other person to say, I'm sorry. But Jesus says, no, 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 I was right, I was wronged, now I initiate reconciliation. Pride says, wait, Jesus says, initiate. And it's a cute little rhyme, so we're going to all say it together, so we remember it into the week. This isn't rocket science kind of stuff, but it is really, really life-changing, important kind of things. So you guys say the word, wait, and initiate, and I'll say the rest. Pride says, Pride. Jesus says, initiate. Pride says, Jesus says, and if you were in a coffee shop or something you said that aloud, awesome, I love it. It's less awkward if you come to church next week. Awesome. Pride says wait. Jesus says initiate. And they did, you guys. That early church did. And they were known for this thing. And and, and sociologists still wonder how this thing swept through everywhere. We just know that. It swept through everywhere. I mean, think about this. 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, just 30 years, uh, Christianity had just jumped over multiple continents. It was spreading that quickly. Within 30 years, there was already a song, a hymn that the early church would sing Just recognizing this one principle. Pride says wait, Jesus says initiate. Just this one principle of humility. They would sing this whole song together. Uh, Paul captured it and he reminded a church that needs to hear it. The church in Philippi and also the church of Grand Rapids. And so we're going to hear it one more time. Price says wait, Jesus says initiate, here's how it sounded to them. And again, these lyrics were put to music, there was a melody behind it, when Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And I hope this thing whole shows up on the screen here, because I want you to see like the prose changes, there's some quotes. What's happening here is we're reading through the lyrics of a song, of a hymn that they would sing when they're all gathered together, and this is what they would sing. They would sing, who? Jesus, who? Being in the very nature of God, do not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness. In Greek, it rhymes. Something. but Sounds better. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself in, by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. They would sing this thing together to remind themselves and remind each other that pride says, wait. But Jesus said, initiate. And boy, did he initiate. I don't know what it was like, but you just imagine the Godhead before creation, before all time, said, hey, listen, this whole thing is going to go south, it's going to spiral out of control, and we're going to need to reconcile it or all back to ourselves. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are together Son, you draw the straw, you're going down. And he's like, are you kidding me? They're not even going to believe who I am. Not most of them anyway. You've got to be, they're not going to be reconciled with me. It doesn't matter. Still, initiate over and over and over. And what does it cost Jesus? They sing about it in the church, and we still sing about it today. That he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus initiates. Jesus dies. And all he asking you to do to follow him is apologize. Jesus becomes obedient to death. And all he's asking you to do is to own up for like the 5% of the wrong, to sur- start surrendering pride. Jesus dies. And all he's asking you to do is to keep your mouth shut for like 10 minutes and actually listen to what the person in your life actually has to say, he died. And all he's asking you to do in return as an expression of your gratitude is to look your son in the eye today and to say, I'm proud of you. Or to look your daughter in the eye today and to say, I love you. Pride is a controller that diminishes us and shrinks us down. It doesn't have to control you. It's possible some of you hearing this today are are ready to hand this control to somebody else, somebody that's gonna give your life back to you instead of taking more and more of it from you. If you're here today and you're like, I don't want this thing to, to reign in my life. I wanna know a better way. I think I'm ready to give this controller over to Jesus and say, you're in charge of my life, not me. You're in a far better place to manage it. I'm yours. It's those same words. I'm sorry. Please help. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Church, I wanna invite you to stand up where you are right now. And if that's you, during this prayer, we've got a team set up in the stations around church. We would love to pray with you. If you're ready to turn over the controller of your life to Jesus, visit one of those stations. Tell one person here today what God is whispering into your heart. Jesus, we come to you today. Lord, we have hearts full because we know behind us is a wake of broken relationships. We know there are things in our lives that don't belong. We know that we're holding on to something. We know maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a name that gets brought up, maybe it's a social media page, that there's a little bit of that bitterness, that we were wronged. And Jesus, you know what that's like. You're right. You were wronged. And you initiated reconciliation. You've asked us to follow along. Holy Spirit, help us to follow along after you this week, to say what needs to be said, to hear what needs to be heard, and to open us up to whatever love that might be available to us, and especially the love of you from heaven to earth. In your name, God, we pray. Amen.